Good morning. Good out. Good afternoon. Habits. Old habits die hard, do they not? So the mistake in the bulletin was all my fault. I had announced that I was going to be preaching that, and I started reviewing that sermon, and I was like, this uh, is not where I'm supposed to be, because I remember the last time I was here, I preached the really heavy uh, news that God had given Habakkuk about the oncoming uh, destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. Um, so by God's providence, I caught my mistake, but not in time for the bulletin. So that's, I apologize for that. Before I, I read the passage uh, and pray uh, for the sermon this morning, um, I thought it would be helpful since it's been uh, such a long time since I have been here uh, to give uh, a very brief review of what has been going on in the book of Habakkuk up to the point of our text this morning. Uh, with that in mind, um, the book was written by a prophet named Habakkuk. No surprise, right? And his name means one who wrestles with God, very aptly named. The book itself bears out his namesake quite appropriately. Habakkuk lived in the southern kingdom of Judah, um, roughly 200 years after the northern kingdom of Israel had been uh, conquered by Assyria and assimilated into uh, obscurity. Habakkuk was grieved in his heart in his day to see how Judah had not heeded the warning that God had given them because of the judgment upon the northern kingdom. Um, And he was grieved to see how Judah had devolved in such great ways into wickedness and sin. And he began to pray to the Lord, asking him why God had allowed Judah to become so wicked while doing nothing about it. We can see this clearly in Habakkuk's first prayer to God. And if you recall, this is a a prayer journal of the prophet. He prays to God and actually hears a response back from God. And prays to God and hears a response back. And that happens several different times. Um, In his first prayer to God, he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And he goes on. And then we read God's reply to the prophet in verses 5 through 11, which is the passage I preached on last time I was here. Uh, God answers his prayers, essentially telling Habakkuk, Habakkuk, I am not standing back and doing nothing. I certainly see the wickedness uh, in Judah, um, but... I am about to unify and raise up an obscure group of warring tribes known as the Chaldeans to overthrow Assyria. And then they are going to come south to destroy Jerusalem and carry off her people into captivity. This group of nomadic tribes were known as the Chaldeans and later became known as the Babylonians. Whom we, that name is more familiar to us if we're familiar with the Old Testament. God also tells Habakkuk that these people will be most unjust, most wicked men, doing and taking whatever they please. And they will commit a great many travesties against Judah as God's hand of discipline falls on Judah for her wickedness. Next, we read Habakkuk's response to this terrible news from God Almighty, beginning in verse 12. 
where Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. So, in one sense, he's accepting the Lord's judgment upon the nation. And he knows that the Lord's discipline, though severe, will not result in the complete annihilation of Judah, which is some comfort to him, at least, at this time in his, uh, his life. But the way in which God had chosen to administer his discipline upon Judah is very hard for Habakkuk to accept. And so he raises a second complaint uh, against God. He says in verse 13, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And he goes on to poetically describe for God just how wicked the Chaldeans were as if God himself were unaware of that fact. The question that he was wrestling with in that complaint was how could God use one nation which is far more wicked to punish a nation which was certainly wicked but far less wicked than they. The ways of the Lord are far above our ways and his thoughts are far above our own. But even knowing that, sometimes we simply do not understand why it is that God chooses to act in the ways in which he does. Why does God, who is just, allow the wicked to prosper and get away with evil? while men who are righteous are persecuted. Questions like this are difficult for us to struggle with, and it was difficult for Habakkuk as well, which is comforting to me, to know that the men of old struggled with some of the same things we wrestle with today. They weren't perfect, which is one of this struggle that he had was one of the main reasons why this book, I believe, is so helpful to all believers of all ages. He raised the second complaint, Habakkuk did, and then he concluded in the beginning of verse uh, chapter 2, he said, he rose his accusation against the Lord. It doesn't seem right to do this by their hand, because they're worse than we are. And then he concludes by saying, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and wait for an answer to this complaint that he had just brought up. Now please hear the reading of God's holy and infallible word to his people this morning, beginning in verse 2 of chapter 2. This is the Lord's reply to Habakkuk's second complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? 
then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes, makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we do ask your blessing upon the preaching of your word as we meditate upon uh, these prophetic words written so many years ago and contemplate uh, the the justice of our great God, the holiness of our great God, uh, your determin- determination over all things, that your plan of salvation may come to pass upon your people. Father, we pray that you would reveal to us uh, what it is you have for us to learn from this passage this morning. Uh, we ask that you would speak to your people this morning through this, uh, this instrument of my lips. Uh, we ask this in the name of our Lord and G- Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Everything recorded for us in this passage is given in order to support the simple uh, doctrine laid out for us in verse 4, which is probably the most often quoted verse of all of Habakkuk, that the just shall live by faith, as many translations say it, or the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 4 shows us that there are basically two different kinds of people in this world. Those who live their lives by faith in the, the counsel of God and trust in his decisions over their own wisdom and those who do not. Either you believe in the God of Scripture and you live your life in light of the truth of his reality or you live your life based upon the conventional wisdom of the day, looking out for yourself and pursuing your own pursuits um, irrelevant of whether or not they please the Lord. The rest of chapter 2, which takes up the vast majority of it, 
beginning in verse 6, is comprised of, I don't know if you counted them as I read them, but there are five woes given there that are given to Babylon. Or more precisely, given about Babylon. These are five prophecies of the coming destruction and ruin of the greatest empire the world had ever seen up to that point in history. But the prophecy of its destruction was given before Babylon even rose to power, which is astonishing, which is beautiful. This is how God is comforting his prophet, telling him, Babylon is going to get what's coming to them. I have things in control here. Okay? God told Habakkuk he was raising up the Babylonians in order to fulfill his own purposes in and through them. But now he tells his prophet in this chapter how it is that he will also tear down Babylon and that he will certainly punish them for their wickedness. The very wickedness that the Lord himself has ordained for them to do. Woe number one. Shall not all these take up their taunts against him with scoffing and riddles for him? All these nations that they've conquered are going to rise up against Babylon and destroy it. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors, or more appropriate translation is in the New King James, will not your creditors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. And it goes on. But Jeremiah, referring to the city of Babylon, uh, refers to them as the hammer of the whole earth. It was an apt and appropriate name for their ruthlessness. And indeed, many nations, not only Judah, Judah, would be later pulverized by the hammer of Babylon before the Lord would step in and halt the carnage. The woe begins with woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. When Babylon, the armies of Babylon, would come to a nation or a city, they would simply take whatever they wanted, loading themselves up with possessions that did not belong to them, and even taking people themselves to become their slaves, to do their own bidding, to build their own cities, to work in their own fields. This woe continues by saying, and to him who loads himself up with many pledges. What's that refer- what that's referring to is basically the practice that conquering armies would engage in in those days. When they would come to a city and they would surround it, if the city resisted them, they would destroy the city. They would steal whatever they wanted and either kill or take the people as their own slaves. If, however, however the city would open up its gates and let them walk in peacefully, they would come into the city, they would still steal whatever they wanted, and, but they would not kill the inhabitants and they would leave them there. They would, however, demand a pledge, which is what this verse is referring to. A pledge of tribute that must be paid to them from that day on. Whether it be food, weapons, money, it was an excessively high tax. The way that Babylon looked at it is that if they spared the lives of these people, therefore the people owed them their lives. They heaped up for themselves many pledges of tributes from their victims, which they thought would make them rich and powerful. However, the Lord did not look at it that way in this woe. 
the shocking impact, I believe, of verse 7, lies in the fact that Babylon looked at themselves as the ones in credit and their victims in debt. If we spare your lives, you owe us this. That's how they looked at it. Though they thought that those who yielded to them were indebted to them. But God doesn't see it that way. He calls these defeated people groups the creditors of Babylon. Essentially saying that Babylon now owed them for what they had stolen from them because it did not belong to them. And your creditors will rise up against you. Babylon thought they were the bank and the people who surrendered to them were taking out a loan with their very lives as collateral. But God here is saying that no Babylon, you are taking out a loan from them and you owe them for you are taking what is theirs. What is more, the prophecy also states that Babylon's creditors will rise up suddenly which certainly happened when, as Babylon's king was having a great feast one night, celebrating his glory, uh, that the whole empire was entirely secure so far as he knew, and that very night he was assassinated, and Darius the Mede, who was not a Babylonian, took over the empire, and the empire of Babylon uh, was never the same. What, the Babylon, what, the, what took the Babylonians uh, several decades or several generations actually to build took one day for the Lord to take, to take away, which is a fulfillment of this prophecy. These people will rise up against you suddenly. If you are the big mean bully on the playground and you steal the lunch money of one or two kids because you're bigger than they are, you might get away with it at least for a while. But if you steal the lunch money of 30 kids, eventually they're going to unite together one day and they're going to give you what for. <laughs> That's exactly what happened to Babylon. They made too many enemies and the remnants of all the people groups that they had suppressed, they rose up together. They united one with another and they plundered the once beautiful city of Babylon, taking back what had been stolen from them in the first place and setting up a new system of government. Yet we must remember that this passage is not simply teaching us that it's unwise to pile up too much debt from too many people. It's teaching us that our great God is indeed a God of justice. And he will absolutely hold everyone to account for their debts. God is saying this in answer, remember, to Habakkuk's complaint that it doesn't seem just for God to punish sinners through the means of more wicked sinners. God's reply here was meant to comfort the prophet so that he would know that God is indeed absolutely just. And all sins, even the sins God ordains himself for his own purposes, will be met one day with divine justice, both temporally and eternally, for sure. The second woe, woe number two. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm or disaster. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples, and you have forfeited your life, for the stones will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork will respond. Here Habakkuk concentrates on the almost, uh, the almost paranoid search for secure, personal security that would typify the future Babylonian king and his leadership. It's the it's the, the type of paranoid search for personal security that dictators today still uh, crave for and seek with great expense. 
When we look at how this prophecy came to pass, I think it is safe to say that there is a poetic double nuance here, which the prophet uses in this phrase, for his house. On the one hand, it refers to the royal palace of, of the king, which Nebuchadnezzar had built for himself. But on the other, it refers to his desire for his dynasty and his future household to reign in Babylon for long periods of time. Like when we hear the, the term, the house and lineage of David. He went on about this in two ways. Um, He says, first, evil gain, and secondly, physical security in order to be safe from harm's reach. Those who gain their wealth by illegal or immoral methods, such as extortion or oppression of the masses, they feel the need for extra security because they know that even though they have power, they are vastly outnumbered and the people that you are suppressing could rise up against you at any time. They build their house on some high, secluded spot guarded by every known security device possible. Some kind of impregnable system so that they can remain confident that they are safe. King Nebuchadnezzar was an insatiable builder. He was very well known for that. Uh, It's not hard, I think, to be an insatiable builder when you have the wealth of the entire known world at that time pouring into your coffers and you have hundreds of thousands of slaves to do whatever you tell them to do as well. It's easy to build great things when you have that kind of manpower and money. After he had conquered his empire, he set up many amazing building projects in towns and cities all over the empire. But it was the city of Babylon that was the apple of his eye. It was the city of Babylon which he focused on fortifying and beautifying. Listen to this description of the city of Babylon in its height. Upon entering the city through one of its eight ornamental gates, a visitor was able to travel about the city on wide, well-kept streets. Among the many impressive buildings were dozens of temples and, of course, Nebuchadnezzar's palace. The palace complex was lavishly furnished and enclosed with a wall that was 136 feet thick. 136 feet thick. You think he was concerned about his personal security? A little? (laughs) In the outer course of the wall, Nebuchadnezzar had his name inscribed on each and every brick. The terraced hanging gardens are said to have been located, which we've all heard of, the hanging gardens of Babylon. They are said to have been located in the northeast angle of the palace complex and were considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It is understandable then that Nebuchadnezzar named his palace the marvel of mankind. King Nebuchadnezzar accomplished all of this, but he did so by means of the possessions, the sweat, and the blood of hundreds of thousands of other people whom he had subjugated to do his own will. Habakkuk poetically writes here as he heard back from the Lord, that the stones and the beams of his own house will cry out against him. Which, indeed, each of the stones on this wall had his name inscribed on them. So that once his house and lineage had been destroyed and taken away, everyone who looked at that palace would see the name Nebuchadnezzar and know that it was his son that had fallen and his house had been taken away and destroyed. The stones were crying out against him. What Nebuchadnezzar desired to be his glory 
turned into being his own shame. Jehovah looked at the names inscribed on these bricks as innumerable witnesses representing all of the oppressed peoples, I believe, calling out and crying out before God concerning the guilt of his sinful theft and oppression, and God would not hold him guiltless. Woe number three. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire? And nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The third woe is not unlike the first two. In the first, God condemns their evil gain. In the second, he condemns building a house with what was stolen. And in the third, he condemns the city of Babylon itself. The beautiful city of Babylon was built in order to glorify the Chaldean people, or the Babylonians as they came to be known, so that they might look at this grand city, which was the capital of the largest empire of the world, and proclaim to the world, look what we have accomplished. See how great and glorious we are. No one can step foot inside this city and not say, wow, this is a great people. Now, there's nothing at all wrong with people setting out to build a beautiful city to inhabit and even being proud of their work. But in this case, the Babylonians built this great city and saw beautiful buildings, seemingly unimpregnable walls and architectural magnificence the world had never seen before. But God looked at that city and he saw bloodshed. He saw iniquity. He saw men striving to glorify themselves rather than their creator. Verses 13 and 14 pronounce the curse upon the city of Babylon as it says, Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? All this work, all of this great expense and cost All the toil, the labor that they would do constructing this city was for nothing because it would be burned and destroyed eventually. All the nations that worked together to build this city, most of whom were working as slaves, were working for nothing. No one even knows where his palace was located exactly today. 136 foot thick walls. There's nothing left of it. Nothing. Vanity, vanity, all indeed is vanity. And why were they working in vain on this the marvel of mankind structure? Because, as it says in verse 14, why why was it in vain for them to work so hard on this beautiful thing? Because, as it says, the earth will not be filled with your glory. The earth will be filled with with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. That is the end. That is the end. What God is saying here is, is, is that they worked very hard to accomplish a goal, which was to fill the earth with the knowledge of their own glory, yet that would come to nothing because it's the knowledge of the glory of the Lord that will eventually cover the earth. Secular people of all periods, including today, have sought their own glory above all else. And to make a name for themselves 
that will echo down the corridors of history so that they might be remembered. This is their goal in life. This is their greatest possible success that they can accomplish in their life in their mind's eye. Yet in the end, after the day of judgment, in the new heavens and in the new earth, who will remember the greatness of King Nebuchadnezzar? Who will remember the greatness of Xerxes, Alexander, or Napoleon? No one is going to be standing in the amazingly beautiful city of the new Jerusalem and taking in that wonderful sight and being awed by it and then pausing and thinking to himself, this is really great, but if only I could see the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, that would really be something. Who's going to be thinking that? No one. The greatest glory of man is but a fading blade of grass that withers and dies, but the glory of the Lord will burn ever brighter in all eternity, for all eternity. Woe number four. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. But you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. For the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your, I believe it was supposed to be a quote-unquote glory. <laughs> there. The violence unto Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them for the blood of man and the violence of the earth to the cities and all who dwell in them. This fourth woe speaks of yet another reason for which God would bring down his judgment upon the Babylonians. Another reason why he would be holding them to account and for which they would have, will have to stand before God on Judgment Day and answer for. They glorified themselves not only by becoming drunk with power and their own supposed glory, by conquering and subjugating nation after nation, not only by using the plunder of, 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 of stolen from their victims to build for themselves a great palace and city which they would bring glory to themselves, but, but they would further humiliate and con- the conquered peoples by forcing them to get drunk in order to make them engage in all sorts of humiliating degradations, to hold them down, to hold them under their heel, so to speak, to do to them whatever they wanted to do, to force them to do whatever they wanted them to do, which is what bullies do. They try to force other people to do humiliating things because, because in our sinfulness as human sinful creatures in our fallen state, we have this foolish idea in our mind that if we can get other people to humiliate themselves, that in some way means that we are somehow more glorious than they are. We are constantly seeking our own glory ever since the Garden of Eden. Do this and you can be like God. Oh, that sounds good. I want that. I want people to look at me and see glory, the glory of God. What is more, they not only forced others to get drunk in order to force their will upon them, they themselves drank and dove into the swimming pool of all sorts of immorality, thinking to themselves, man, now this is what life is all about. They had become a law unto themselves. 
They could do whatever they pleased. But the Lord says to them, Woe be unto you. You who force others to drink and drink yourselves in order to humiliate others, to glorify yourself and engage yourself headlong in all of your wicked sinful pursuits and pleasures. I, the Lord, declare to you that you will certainly drink from the cup of the Lord's justice and vengeance upon you for this. Your wine will run dry. Your glory will turn to shame. What you look forward to doing in your sin today, one day you will look back on and be utterly disgusted with yourself and ashamed. Your bottle of wine will run dry, but the cup of the justice of God never, ever, ever will. Woe number five. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This fifth woe speaks not of the self-worship which epitomized the other four woes which the Babylonians engaged in, but turns to the cultic worship of Babylon where they worshipped man-made idols. Scripture speaks about idols as being empty, lifeless, and useless, while at the same time having great power over the lives of those who worshipped them. They are dumb or unable to speak, yet are able to, to teach lies and mislead as Habakkuk states in verse 18, Woe to him who says to silent stone, Arise and teach. Yet in it there is no breath at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. It doesn't say the Lord will be in his holy temple. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In the temples of pagan gods, you would see their gods overlaid with gold and silver. But they did not breathe. They did not speak. They did not move. They did not live. In direct opposition to these false deities, the Lord was in his temple. And there is no statue or image of him there at all. Rather, he himself has made his presence manifest there. And he certainly breathed. Indeed, he breathed the very life into all that lives. He certainly spoke. Not merely Words, but the word of the Lord caused all that it is to come into existence and also sustains all existence. He certainly lives, and not only does he live, but all of life only continues to exist through his providence. All of these woes, or declarations of future judgment, were to befall Babylon for her yet future sins and atrocities. Yet all of these woes also serve as warnings to future generations as well. That judgment and destruction is declared upon all men who have ways that are opposed to the Lord. That was as true in Habakkuk's day and in the days of Nebuchadnezzar as it is today. And that's a message I think we need to take to heart and remember. The wicked may have great temporary success. They may look outwardly 
in the, in the eyes of men as though they are able to glorify themselves and make themselves look great. Accumulate great, great amounts of wealth. Great amounts of power. But just as Judah needed to be ready to watch Babylon grow in power, strength, and worldly wealth, they were being called to live a life of faith in God and in the message that he was giving to his prophet Habakkuk. As you watch them grow in power and in wealth and in strength, remember that the Lord is in his holy temple and he will avenge. And Because as certainly as Babylon's star rose to prominence, it will fall to the earth and be swallowed up by the sea of God's judgment. Like Habakkuk, we often really struggle at times with questions of God's sovereignty and justice when we see all sorts of moral perversity and wickedness growing and becoming more popular. We have a whole month of, of, of pride right now of growing wickedness. Look at our glory. We can live our lives however we want. We can determine our own biological sex even. We have become like God. And they're not ashamed of this. They're proud of it. They're proud of it. And that is not by any stretch of the imagination the only wickedness that we see growing in our day and age today. And we see this, and we sometimes become fearful of the future. But should we? We know that their glory will come to nothing. We know that their glory will come to their, their shame. For what they do today with pride, they will look back on one day and be ashamed. We know that. We believe that. We should live our lives like that is the truth. And live with confidence in the one true and living God. We struggle sometimes asking, why does the wicked glorify themselves at the expense of the righteous? We may ask God even why he allows such wickedness to succeed. Ever since I can uh, remember hearing prayers in church, when I was old enough to actually understand them, I was hearing prayers almost every week that God would end the, the, uh, the evil of abortion in our country. Yet that hasn't happened. Why are you allowing this, God? We struggle with questions like that. Because we know he could stop it. Yet we must also trust and know that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that he is a just and terrible God. He says, woe to the proud. But we must live by faith. We must trust in his righteousness. We must trust in his goodness. We must trust in his loving discipline of our own sinfulness. Even in, when it comes to us in ways that we would prefer didn't come to us in those ways. Can't you teach me this lesson in a different way that's less painful, that's less shameful, that's less harmful to me, to my family? He could, but his wisdom is above ours. We must trust and live by faith in his discipline of our own sins and in his promise to exercise his most perfect justice upon all who glory in themselves, with which is vanity. We must live by faith, by trusting in who God is and knowing who God is. How do we know who God is? Well, we read books like Habakkuk and we see his character. We see what he has done in the past and we also see what he 
promises to do in the future. He brought all of these things to pass on Babylon just as he spoke them before Babylon existed. This is his character. He ordains to allow great evils to occur on the earth, which we see here. He rose up the Chaldeans himself for this purpose. His wisdom is above ours. We must live our lives by faith. And as we engage in the world in which we live, and and as we watch uh, the, the religion of secularism and pluralism replacing Christianity in this nation, and many other nations as well, as we see the, the, the wicked mandate, the, the legalization and even celebration of all sorts of the purest evils, and most perverse evils, I should say, what should we make of it? I tell you what. Let the enemies of God and his people run rampant. Let everything appear as if they are going to exterminate the Christian church. Let them glory in themselves. Because I know they are laboring for fire. I know that a day is certainly coming when at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee, every tongue. Even those which are used today to blaspheme him. I know that certainly the earth will one day be filled with the the knowledge of the glory of God. The evil one will be routed and cast into the lake of fire. And everything and everyone opposed to God will be destroyed. And there will be a new heaven. And there will be a new earth wherein righteousness dwells forevermore. The ultimate triumph of God is so sure, no matter what. Knowing that and living our lives day by day in that knowledge and in that trust and in that faith is what it means for the just to live by faith. And may all praise, glory, and honor be unto our great God who is a God of justice. Him who was, who is, and certainly is to come. Will you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we do come before you today. We read this conversation that took place between you and your prophet. And it almost seems like Habakkuk was living in our country today. We pray, Father, that the words that you gave your prophet would be encouraging to us who believe. May it be a warning to those who are living their lives, seeking their own glory. May they see this as a warning and turn from their ways to glorify you rather than themselves. Father, we pray that your justice would come swiftly and quickly upon the wicked, but that many of the wicked will be converted before then. And we yearn for the day when your glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. May that day come quickly, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.